The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. And this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of love and other addictions. We go deep with psychotherapist Jessica Ryan Zeman. Jessica opens up about why people have addictions and how they can be treated. We focus mainly on love addiction in this episode, but don't worry, I'll be inviting Jessica back so we can talk more about other addictions like shopping addiction, eating disorders, and food addictions. A few things that we cover in this episode are why do people develop addictions? Why are some people more likely to get them or have them than others? What are some common addictions? We go through the 12-step program for addictions. I asked Jessica, what makes someone a love addict? How is love addiction treated? We also talk about some books by Pia Melody, including Facing Love Addiction. A little bit about Jessica Ryan Zeman. She is a psychotherapist in private practice in Sydney. She has a background in addictions, having worked extensively running group rehab programs at several private hospitals and public rehabs across Sydney. She formed her private practice in 2011, where she continued to specialise in addictions, particularly eating disorders. She treats both men and women, but is particularly passionate in helping women, especially teenagers and young women. She herself is in recovery from an eating disorder and she brings her own experience in helping others in their recovery. Jessica is also a proud mum of two beautiful boys. You can find out more about Jessica on her website, www.sydneyrecoverycounseling.com.au. I hope you enjoy our episode. Jessica Ryan Zeman, you've got a hyphen in your name. Well, it's still sort of what I've um, left over from my marriage, unfortunately. <laughs> so, <laughs> I always like hyphenated yeah. names. There, there's just something well, about them. Well, no, my, my name is actually Lachlan, but because it's such an unusual name and when I got married is sort of when my practice got started, I feel now I've changed back on everything, but I sort of feel like if I was to change my name back now, people would be like, who is that? Who is she? So mm. yes, yeah, still not in my, in my professional life is that. Yeah, I like it. I like the hyphen. Thank you. And I, and I like the letter Z. There you go. There we go. <laughs> off, to, off to a good start. Oh, yeah. Now, you're an addiction specialist and- uh, cool. I, want, I know you, you do a lot with eating disorders, but I thought for this this episode, for this podcast recording, we talk more about other addictions and uh, that don't necessarily involve food. But before we launch into love addiction, uh, I wanted to ask you about addictions and, and why is it that some people develop them? How, how does someone get diagnosed with an addiction? Yeah, and it's, it's a really difficult question, sort of um, I don't think there's a singular answer to this because I think everyone reacts differently based on their own biochemistry. So, you know, back when I studied addictions at uni, they didn't even know there's always been this debate whether it's genetics, whether it's environment. I would say based on experience, it's probably an interplay, you know, between environmental and genetics. But even with the environmental factors, you know, of trauma, 
you have to have trauma plus a completely non-supportive environment, I think, for an addiction to develop. So mm-hmm. I know I know there was, a, you know, there's a, a thing called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale, which is basically all the horrific things that can happen to a kid. And what they found is someone can score really highly on that scale. They can have all kinds of terrible things happen to them as a kid, but they won't necessarily develop an addiction if they had somebody else that was stable. So their parents might have been emotionally absent, but they had a great teacher, a great soccer coach, a neighbor, friends, someone else that was really present for them. So really what happens is I think the people that develop addictions, the ones that don't have any stability or any support either in the family unit or outside it. Well, that speaks a lot to um, parenting and having, you know, secure, mature adults around you, I would say. Absolutely. So it kind of comes back to kind of, yeah, those early attachment figures. And, you know, there's a, there's a term we use a lot, which is called mirroring. So even someone's um, childhood doesn't even necessarily have to be particularly abusive, but if the parents are able to mirror them, if they're able to be present and really, you know, be aware and be attuned to the experience of the child, the child can still grow up feeling neglected and not really having a sense of self or self-esteem. So are people who have addictions, are they more likely to have had parents with addictions as well? And if so, the same addiction? Correct. And I think that's where the genetic interplay comes into it, but then also the environmental stresses. Because if you've got a a mum that's drinking, she's obviously not going to be emotionally present. And there's going to be a lot of chaos that comes out of that, which is going to be really confusing and unstable for a child. But also, I don't know about you, but Nobody that I know that smokes doesn't have a parent that's a smoker. Mm, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say the same? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah. the same. My brother smokes. My dad was a smoker for a very long time. Mm. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I suppose it's what you're exposed to and uh, yeah, what you get comfortable with, I suppose, because things that you're often exposed to you might get comfortable with. Is that a, is that a far-reaching statement? Yeah, and I think it's kind of normalised, isn't it? If you grow up in a household where, you know, alcohol's around, where smoking's around, that can kind of become normalised. You might not even realise that your parent has an addiction or, or a problem because, you know, that that is just the normal. And I think a lot of us don't really question how how we grew up. It's just how we don't know that that's not happening in every household as a child. So what are the most common sense. addictions you see? Oh, drug, drug and alcohol, and that's kind of my, my, my background working in, in rehabs and hospitals. Um, so drug and alcohol, relationship, and, you know, eating disorders, I would say I would still classify as, as an addiction because I think food, you know, is another addiction. It's a process addiction, not a chemical addiction, so there's a slight difference there, but they would be the main ones I'd see, but also gambling, shopping, you know, basically uh, work, those kind of ones as well. But I'd say probably drug and alcohol um, and food and relationships would be my most common ones. And which is the most difficult one for you to manage, you think? Oh, I think the one we're talking about today, I would say love addiction. Love addiction. <laughs> oh, can't wait to get to love addiction, but I have a few more questions <laughs> yeah. about, about things before I, getting to that. I, I would say that because, I, I, and I guess food addictions too. So, uh, so they're your two process addictions, right? So I guess if someone's addicted to, to a substance, to a chemical substance, it's very clear to know what bottom line behaviours is. They're going to reach rock bottom. Whereas, you know, with something like um, a love addiction especially, 
it almost becomes very similar to gambling in that the more destructive the relationship is, the more they'll hang in there thinking, okay, I'm going to hang in a bit longer. I'm, I'm going to get a win here. And they don't. So it can just drag on and on and on a lot more than, say, a, a chemical addiction can. And what did you study at uni? Uh, so I studied psychology and English at uni um, at Sydney, and then I wanted to do a master's in psychotherapy and counselling. Wow. Where did you do that? I did that at Janssen Newman Institute um, years ago, and that was way more valuable than my psych degree because we had to do three hours of group therapy every single week in a group with people that we were studying with for two years. So... <laughs> So you were getting your own there's therapy no, the whole time too. There's no hiding from any issues then. And yeah, I think, yeah, you really kind of, yeah, it really helps. And in terms of like understanding family systems and trauma, people in the group come to represent, you know, people that remind you of people in your family. And yeah, I think you really get a good understanding of yourself after doing your own therapy and that component. So I think that was intensely more valuable than my psych degree. And you mentioned earlier biochemistry. Yeah. Is there anything that, you picked up from your studies that has really stayed with you in terms of of biochemistry that you can share with us? Well, I think, and you would probably know this as well, being a doctor, but just how different everyone reacts to different drugs, right? So in terms of like, you know, I've known people that you give them Valium, they can have a panic attack on it, whereas Valium is meant to calm you down. Or some people will say, oh, I would never try pot, but I, I love cocaine. You know what I mean? Because it's different things seem to soothe different people's systems. But I think as well in terms of um, addiction, the role of dopamine, which is basically that's our feel-good uh, uh, neurotransmitter. So that's the one, you know, that we get a massive surge of when we're kids and it's the night before Christmas. Um, and what we find is that kids that grow up in households where there's trauma or emotional neglect, they're left with this kind of chronic feeling of feeling low, dull and empty. So they're kind of carrying around this empty, dull feeling for the most of their lives. And then, you know, they get to their teen years of their early adulthood and they discover drugs, sex, food, and they get that massive kick of dopamine. They think, wow, this feels really good. This is the thing that's been missing. This is the thing that kind of fills that void. So they're kind of, they're already chronically low on it anyway. And then they found the thing that kind of creates that thing that's been missing. And you mentioned earlier the ACES study. Mentioned the what study? Was it the ACES study you mentioned, the the um, childhood study? What was the oh, acronym yes. for that? Oh, yeah, sorry, that um, Aversive Childhood Experience um, Study. Yes, yeah. Uh, what did that, that was that an American study? Yeah, that was an American one. I actually, I came across it on a podcast I was listening to on body dysmorphia, actually, and sort of the link between body dysmorphia and eating disorders and why some people develop, you know, body dysmorphia and, and self-image issues that often linked to kind of, once again, childhood trauma. So it's basically a survey that they did, which was very widespread over kind of all the adversive experiences that could happen, you know, be that divorce, you know, violence, addiction, all the big ones, you know, and Basically, there's a scale and how people can score very highly on that scale but still not go on to develop, you know, these addictions and mental health issues or other people score highly and do. And what they found, yeah, was the main factor was what I said before, having some other stable role model or a stable school environment, some some kind of stability in their life. In, in terms of stability, have they mm. looked at, what person is the most powerful stabilizer? So is it a mother, 
Is it a father? Is it a sibling? Have they looked at that? Yeah, look, that's very, very different schools of thought would say different things on that one. Um, I think it probably comes down, unfortunately, to mum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, different different schools of thought would say different things, but I think primarily it's mum because it comes down to that really early attachment or even if you look at kind of, uh, you know, how far back do you want to go of what happens maybe even in the womb as looking at prenatal trauma of how mum's stress hormones can kind of affect baby and how that can kind of already pre-wire kids to be, you know, more susceptible to stress. Do you think... Uh- Obviously, I'm a, I'm a fertility doctor and I see people yeah. planning a pregnancy. Should I be screening people for addictions? Oh, that's a that's an interesting one. Are there any uh, addictions maybe... that are, are more likely to be harmful? I mean, alcohol is a big standout one and, yeah. and I, I screen for alcohol, I screen yeah. for drugs, <laughs> smoking, but I don't screen, screen for gambling for, though, or shopping. It? Exactly, and it's hard to it's hard to screen for it, isn't it, because someone can present and I find this, you can only go off what people tell you. And if people are desperate enough for something, then they'll present whatever to get that end goal. And I think particularly with addictions, they can be really well hidden. So I think it's, and I think you can miss things in screening, can't you? Because I think screening and I remember I, I um, was involved in a conference on body dysmorphia last year and we talked about this thing of trying to, it was a plastic surgery conference and they talked about this issue of screening and how tricky it can be to screen for something like that because if someone wants the surgery, they know all the answers to the questions. So I guess it depends on how, what screening processes you would use. I mean, how do you screen for addictions? I mean, the ones that you do, like alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I mean, looking at someone's bank statements might be a good start. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it, you know where people, people's money's generally going. Um, <laughs> where's, that, where's that cash withdrawal going every Friday night? <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that what banks are doing now? They're looking closely at people's, um, you know, bank statements to see where their discretionary spending is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Which which is scary. And and you know what, does that necessarily mean that someone has has an addiction? I mean, I'm not hardline against drugs and alcohol. I think in the context of having a good time, to me the definition of addiction is when the negative consequences start to outweigh the positive consequences. Yep. So that's that's yep. that would be with that actually have we talked about um definitions? Have we talked about what it means to have an addiction? What why it is a big deal? That's right, exactly, because you're saying, Okay, I look at someone's bank statements, all right, they they take money every second Friday night out, they go out and, and take drugs, but the rest of their life is stable. It's not impacting the negatives anyway, they're managing their lives. So I think for me I would come down to sort of the, the twelve step model of addiction and that's step one which is that your life is you're powerless over the substance and your life has become unmanageable. And I think for me, it's the unmanageability component. It's the fact that I'm in this denial, thinking that I'm managing everything and I'm not, that there's all these negative consequences and all this chaos and all this drama, yet I continue to use, you know, my drug of choice. So Jessica, if you could take me through the 12-step program for addictions. Absolutely. So this is this is a program that originally started um, built on AA, so Alcoholics Anonymous, but there's now 12 steps. Um, there's NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous. There's OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous. There's SLAA, which is SLA, which is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. So it kind of 
was born out of AA, but now there's basically 12-step meetings for all kinds of things. Um, and I think what turns people off as I go through them is the religious component, but the basic concept of it is handing your power over to a higher power because the idea behind addiction is that the substance becomes the higher power. Mm. So alcohol becomes my higher power or in the case of love addiction, that relationship, that person becomes my higher power. Um, but yeah, but I'll, I'll go through it. So step one is um, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. So, and I think for a lot of people that um, that step one can take people years to get and they kind of have to keep coming back to that step because the denial that it's inherent in addiction is the, is the bit in your brain that says, no, I can still manage it. It's not a problem. I can stop at any time. There's no issue here. Um, and so step two is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So this is what I said before, you know, instead of making alcohol or, you know, another person your higher power, it's turning your will to something. So it's asking for some kind of spiritual uh, or spirituality kind of component to it, be that God, be that, you know, God of your understanding is what they say now. Yeah, so just something greater than yourself. And uh, step, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. So step three is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So again, it's kind of that process of surrender they're big on. So kind of, you know, surrendering your drug of choice as, as your higher power and putting your trust or process in something in something else. And step four is we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So that's really going back and kind of looking at all the chaos that, that your addiction has kind of caused. Because I think people rarely give up a substance or a person or whatever their drug of choice is because they don't enjoy it. They give it up because they're just sick of all the chaos and the destruction that it's caused. So step four is a big one because it's kind of really making that moral inventory of all the harm it's caused. Um, and step five is we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. So that's uh, basically telling another person, you know, so whether that be a sponsor, a counsellor, you know, family member, you actually go through that list and tell that to another person. And that's really dealing with, you know, a big component of addiction, which is shame. So the antidote to shame is the cold, hard light of day. So actually speaking to another person and, you know, not having them turn away in horror. So I guess you've got to be careful who you share that list mm. with. And are you generally encouraged um, to just share it with one person? Or just Yes. Yeah. I yeah, just, and this is well, this, the thing with the 12-step thing is you would work through these steps with a sponsor, so someone that's already in the program, so a sober, older member of the program. You know, So the idea is that you show up at these meetings, you get a sponsor and you work this program and the program is the step and with each step there's step work. And you go through this step work with, you know, yeah, with the sponsor. But then over time, you might want to share things, you know, with, with someone that you trust. Because I think the more people that you that you share it with that you do trust, the less shame that you're kind of carrying around. Yep. Okay. And, um, yeah, do you want me to keep going? Or, yeah, I mean, step yeah, six. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, so step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So that's really asking for, for forgiveness. Yeah, and once again, God, you know, I use that in a loose term because it doesn't have to be a religious kind of God, but it's basically learning to forgive yourself because I think often the guilt and shame of addiction 
addicts can be so hard on themselves and then that can spiral them back into it. And and step seven is kind of a carry-on of that. So we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. So kind of a carry-on of that of like, okay, what are these defects? And, you know, please help me with this. And step eight is the, probably the tricky one. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Ooh, big <laughs> one, that one. That's a big one. Yep, yep. So that's... um. That's the one where, yeah, you kind of have to go through it. And then step nine is we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So obviously there's some people you might want to make amends to that say, you know, that have cut you off or don't want anything to do with you or you can't do it. So where possible, you directly approach the person and said, when X happened, I feel really sorry for that. But yeah, when you can't, you can't. But yeah, that's, that's a tricky one for that. And remember, it could take people years to do these steps and these steps are not um linear you might have to go back and forth and people might have to like I said keep coming back to step one yeah some people might want to rush through these steps and realize no actually I've got to concentrate on on one step in particular uh what are we up to number 10 number 10 we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it so that's basically as you're in the program getting sober and getting more time up even if you remove your your drug of choice other issues are going to surface because remember the drugs just self-medicating. So what people often find is over time in a program and by the time you've got to step 10, you'd have some level of time and sobriety up. So you might have other issues. You might find that you're pretty angry, that you're pretty snappy at people or, you know, you're quite hard to communicate with or all these things that the drugs kind of or whatever substance you're using kind of dull down. So that's really dealing with kind of the underlying issues. Um, Step 11, we thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So that's basically just, you know, keeping on with that sort of spirituality element and keeping up that relationship with that spirituality, um, you know, as developing that concept of that higher power outside a substance. And mm. step 12 mm. is kind of a carry-on of that of, Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, that's the hope, we tried to carry this message to addicts and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So that's really the idea of um, the outreach, that you become a sponsor, that you are active in in the program, in the 12-step fellowship, because the whole thing is it is a fellowship and that's welcoming new members in, sponsoring people, continuing to have a role and, and taking that responsibility because the idea that if you're accountable to that, it's going to make you less likely to relapse. So are you saying that all people who go through things like, uh, uh, was it Narcotics Anonymous? Yeah, that, that was the Narcotics Anonymous yeah. one, but that oh, was okay. one of many. Yeah. Okay, so so you have Alcohol- Alcoholics Anonymous, you mentioned Sex Love Addicts Anonymous. Do they all yep. have the yep. same outline, the, all the same 12-step program, or are they different? Pretty much. Really? Pretty much. The, wor- the wording can be slightly different, but, yeah, yeah pretty much the 12 steps are, are the same for everyone. And I think it's a really good program, but I think what turns people off you know, it's originally it was religious, and they've adjust, you know it started in the sixties, and and they've adjusted that over time to accommodate you know, yeah, more modern mm. concepts. But pretty much it's the same, yeah. And it's an abstinence-based model. So obviously, it's a little bit different when you apply it for things like you know, sex and love or food, because you can't be abstinent from relationships or food. Um, but yeah, but basically, it's the, it's the same thing. It's the idea of you know, t- 
turning your power over and giving back and being accountable. Yeah, I noticed the pronoun him in point or step yes. three <laughs> and in step 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, have they changed that or is it still there? No, it's still there. Oh, it's wow. still there. And I think this is the thing, yeah, I know. And it's just what turns a lot of, yeah, a lot of people off what is actually at the base of a, a really good program, you know. But it's by no means the only one. There's things like smart recovery, which is a bit more modern, um, which is slightly different to kind of that step work. But what I, what I really like about about the fellowship is the thing that it is a fellowship. It's it's a group based thing. You get acceptance. It's anonymous. It's free. There's meetings all over the place. You don't feel like the only person. You know, you get people from all works walks of life that are struggling with the same stuff and that sense of kind of community. And you know, I really think isolation is such a huge and shame are such big parts of addiction. And I think those things help break that down. So, so yeah, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of flaws in it, obviously, but I think there is still a lot of good to it. As my good friend Karen Hopwood says, focus on the fabulous. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy. And I think, you know, some people are horrified when I suggest they go along to me and they go, I'm not like those people. I I don't relate to that. And they have a staying in the rooms of look for the similarities, not the differences. So you, when you see patients or people for mm. uh, addiction, a lot of them are actually going to these meetings at the same time as seeing you in parallel? No, I, no, I wish they would. No, most people have to really force different when I worked in, in rehabs and private hospitals because part of the program was attending these 12-step meetings. But people I see privately, that's often why they seek me out. They say, I want to deal with this. I want to pay you. I want to talk to you. I don't want to be in a room full of people. I don't want to do that bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I really, see the value in that too. Yeah, I, I get, yeah. I get that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Particularly when you're thinking about things like you know, sex and love and things like that, people feel really embarrassed, and 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 the shame can be that bit high. They go, I don't want to be in a room full of people talking about that. Let's talk about love then, shall we? Okay. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. The question I've been dying to ask you: What <laughs> is a love addict? What makes someone a love addict? Okay, I would say that someone who's a love addict is someone that puts the needs of their partner over and above themselves repeatedly to their own detriment and in the face of harmful consequences. Uh, That sounds like a lot of people I know. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of us are in in unhealthy relationships, you know. um, Or even myself in previous relationships, I think I've done that before. Well, Well, you know what, I think... In a love-addictive relationship, like all relationships in the beginning, it's fueled by intensity, okay? And that's the way it is for all us. We get into relationships. We're all having heaps of sex. It's all intense. It's amazing. It's all you can think of it. You're getting that dopamine surge. It's all amazing. Is that the limerence that they talk about? Pardon? The limerence? Yeah. Yeah. I was having a discussion with my my colleague, Devorah Lieberman, today about um, Mm. that because I was saying I was going to podcast with you and we're talking about love addiction and she said she brought Mm. up the word limerence and I thought I I love Mm. that word because it describes things so perfectly in one word. Can you you let our listeners know what that means, what limerence is? Oh gosh, it's it's hard. It's hard to put in. It's, It's sort of that intangible, beautiful, it's like a buzz, a beautiful warm buzz that fills your whole body and that connection. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful feeling and that complete fusion. Yeah, how would you say? What, how would you describe it? Um, having experienced it a few times, it feels like a spell has been cast on you, mm. but not a bad mm. spell, a good spell. 
and that you're kind of not not of not of the earth that you are a kind of above the earth floating and yeah everything Mm. is is great and amazing and Mm. yep we call you know call honeymoon period yes that's right it's just that that beautiful yeah and even when you're in it you know once you're an adult you've been through it like i know what this is and i know it will go but i'm just gonna enjoy this while it lasts the point is that most of us as adults can recognize this is temporary right Mm. That this is intensity, and and this is that this is going to wear off, and over time we're going to see will this work, will this not work? The problem with um with people that are love addicts is they continue to confuse that intensity for love. Um, as in they intensity is then mistaken for intimacy, because I guess what makes a long term relationship work, what what is you know true love, I think, is growing intimacy and unfortunately see unfortunately intimacy uh the only thing that really increases intimacy is the ruptures in a relationship is the conflict is being able to overcome the bad so i don't know if this sort of helps it's kind of it's very adolescent i guess love addicts version of love so i guess you know teenage girls how do they form they think they form intimacy by disclosing their whole histories to each other right they tell each other everything um, but they're just forming intensity. That's all they're doing, you know. And over, or on a first date, you know, someone who's a love addict might say, "Oh, I went on this one date. It's like I've known him forever. It's amazing." And I go, "No, you've been on one date. You don't know him." Whereas an, a, an intimate statement might be, "Oh, I feel really nervous. I came on this date, but I'm really glad that I came and met you." Oh, okay. So an emotionally intense date would be heaps of disclosure, whereas an Intimate intimate date is more kind of that thing of I feel this, yeah, and being vulnerable. And who suffers more from this, men or women? Ah, what do you think? <laughs> women. <laughs> and what would make you say that? I don't know. I think it's popular culture ah. and the fact that as women we talk to each other a lot. We, we talk we we talk about things all the time, don't we? So we. We are we have an awareness of it maybe more than men perhaps mm. I'd say um, and I don't know is it cultural you know is it oh. does it depend on which decade you are in your life or you might more likely to be a love addict in your twenties than you are in your fifties because I certainly know that as I'm getting older man if there was any love addict in me back then I don't think there is any love addict mm. right now so I don't know I, no, I don't know if it's hormonal I, I don't know what it I is. Think- I think that's maturity. I look back at, you know, you know, like obviously I'm divorced and I, you know, met my first husband when I was 23. I didn't know who I was at 23. I wasn't going to be able to be capable of picking my life partner at 23. I think over time you learn from your mistakes and it's self-knowledge and self-awareness, you know. But whereas I think love addicts typically repeat the same pattern again and again and again, you know, they don't kind of evolve and mature and you kind of know it. They're still thinking, I need to find this other person and they're going to complete me. And I think in a sense that is fueled by popular culture, you know, young girls are trained to believe that men are the source of value, the source of power, Mm. you know, and that we need to be taken care of by a man. Yeah. So, Mm. and, you know, and you, you can find this with, you know, women that have been vulnerable, that have suffered from, you know, childhood abandonment and neglect, they come to think themselves as unworthy. And I also think, you know, I'll probably get shot down and find this, but we excuse a lot of men's bad behaviour. 
Yeah, but but women do that a lot, not just men. So we should blame ourselves, you know. God, exactly. So then we put ourselves in these in these relationships, and we stay over time. Oh, he's just a man. He needs his boys' night. Well, of course he's not going to be able to get with the baby as much. He's just a man. He won't know this. We excuse a lot of it, and we enable a lot of bad behaviour. So often people don't even realise they're kind of in this dysfunctional relationship because, yeah, we put up you know, mm. with this concept that men are not held to the same level of accountability. Women are meant to be the nurturers, are meant to be the ones that, you know, do all the emotional stuff. So you have women that sort of, they give and they give and they give and don't realise they're not getting much in return. I read uh, an article by a woman called Alexandra Katahakis um, mm. online and she wrote, a love addiction doesn't necessarily pertain only to romantic or sexual relationships. It is possible for a person to relate as a love addict with their friends, children, sponsor, guru, or religious figure, or even with a movie star whom they have never met. And when I read this, I thought to myself, oh, wow, in the 80s and in the early 90s, I was totally addicted to John Bon Jovi, Duran Duran, the Spandau Ballet groups, you know, the, the 80s pop boy groups. And I had them plastered all over my wall and everywhere. I had them as covers on my on my books for school and, and everything. But now, was I love addicted? No. I think that's that's normal. That's normal sort of psychosocial development of, you know, like teens need an idol. They need something to kind of to worship. So I, I don't I don't think I think that was all of us, wasn't it? Yeah. If, that we if, need if to I though was um like, you know, I would hop on a plane or I'd go to great lengths to get tickets to meet them at their, you know, backstage. Or if I was a serious groupie, would that take it to another level, maybe love addiction? I don't think so because I think that's still, you're still describing the world of an adolescent girl. I think the problem is with love addiction is oh, we wouldn't diagnose any 17-year-old girl as a love addict because at that stage that's still the norm to get involved to believe that, yeah, you're special to this pop star or to believe, you know, the dropkick you're dating um, a year ahead of you is, is going to commit to you or marry you and you get lost in fantasy. I think it's when we don't mature. Like I think love addiction is when you're in that regress state. It's, it's a 30-year-old woman maybe still I was going to say if I was 39 things. doing that, would I yeah. be a love addict? Well, yeah, I think that that would probably be that would be that would be a problem. Yeah, okay. I, and I think that's more it's more um, maybe not love addiction so much as as the concept of codependency. Mm. Codependency. Yeah. Wow. Codependency. So codependency is kind of what sits beneath all addiction. So the idea that you know I can't uh, I can't experience or express my reality or my feelings because I'm too caught up in yours. So I think we can be become very codependent with. With a with a with our children, you know, with a with a boss, with a friend, with with those kind of things, rather than I think the love addiction is more kind of that uh, relationship. Yeah. So maybe if you know if your spouse leaves you, then you transfer your addiction onto your kids. But it's more that codependent kind of a mesh fusion kind of state. And have you got any love addicted cases you wanted to share with us? Oh, specifics. Oh. Probably, probably not, not, um, probably not specific, but I would say that, you know, they have a really, they have a really hard time. You know, I remember a, a guy that, that, that I saw and at one time and, you know, he came to see me because he still couldn't, couldn't get over this, this woman and, and they'd split up for about six months by this point and everything in the relationship was toxic. It was bad. It was all bad. You name it, what was happening. 
but, but the sex was so amazing and that's what he just couldn't get past. He's like, but the sex was so good, that's what kept him going. And I think he mistook that intensity as, as it, it must kind of be love. And I think, you know, I think, and I was talking um, with my clinical supervisor before I did this podcast and I said to her, have you had love addicts that have really stayed in treatment over a long period of time? And she said, not really. And I said, me either. And I think, you know, generally the clients I treat, it's longer term psychotherapy, it's deep work. We do a lot of work on childhood, on family systems. But I'd say the love addicts, they don't stick around very long because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear me kind of shatter their fantasy because a lot of what they tell me is caught up in trying to convince me that, yes, he did love me. Yes, I was special. Yes, I meant something. And I'm trying to break down that defense and saying, no, you didn't. And it wasn't real what you had. And this is, you know, part of your kind of, you know, symptomology and they don't want to take that on. So they don't Mm. really stick around for treatment. Or is it because they find somebody else and move on and then suddenly don't need you anymore? No, I think they just don't want to let go. Mm. They they, They really don't want to let go, you know. And I would, you know, I say to them, I'd rather cut off my left arm with a plastic spoon than be addicted to someone. You know, it's Mm. really 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 hard because you have to remember as well that people have to really be wanting to change to change you know and many people are kind of at that pre-contemplative state of change when they enter treatment particularly for love addiction because they're testing the waters but you know any addiction is hard to treat unless someone is post-contemplative so the idea that change is not at a thought level that they're ready to action change and that's really hard particularly when it comes to a person because to them, the love is very real and for them to let go of that. I mean, we know breakups are hard anyway. So, yeah, it's really hard unless the person wants to come and wants to change. And what they want me to tell them is that it's not just all in their head and that this person really did love them and what they have was real and I'm trying to tell them the opposite. So is love addiction hard to treat? I think it's one of the hardest, yeah, because you've got someone that probably won't stick around in treatment for very long. And as well, because... If you think of a, a breakup painful, but when a love addict breaks up from a relationship, they've got all their adult pain, but they've also got all the childhood trauma. So they've kind of got double pain and that is really intensely painful. And who wants to sit with that? Yeah, who wants to mm. find, find up to therapy and actually sit with that? And a love addict's more likely to have short, lots of short-term relationships as opposed to long-term relationships. Yes. I think they do. It's kind of they'll have these series of these unstable kind of, yeah, relationships, you know, but not not necessarily. You know, you, you kind of have a love addict that's in an unhappy marriage and they stay and they stay and they stay. But, um, yeah, generally speaking, it, it, the pattern would be that it's more a series of kind of short-term things. So we, we talked about the um, 12-step program for addictions earlier from 1 to 12. Roughly, you know, how would you treat a love addiction in those kind of that's one in that one to twelve step format? I know that they vary, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, between each program and each addiction. But if I came in to see you and and I was clearly had a love addiction, how would you work through things with me? And and how many you know sessions would it take on average for for it to help me? Well, it's it's a it's probably long-term therapy it's probably you know it's different for everyone but it's not going to be a a, um six session fix it's probably you know it can be anything from you know a couple of years because it's it's a it's a grieving process essentially if your needs never met as a child 
So you kind of have to, um, you know, yeah, often what they want to come and talk about is their obsession with this partner, what they did. So they're obsessed with either how to get them back or how to get even rather than to what they've actually got to do is endure the withdrawal process and actually talk about, you know, their childhood and what's really going on rather than sitting over here obsessing about Bob that they haven't been with for a year. So, yes, and and sometimes that itself, just getting to that second layer of work, which is where the work is, which is on the childhood, can take a long time for them to actually get out of, you know, obsession or revenge and, you know, focus on the underlying issues. So if if I know someone, say I've got a girlfriend or a, a, a guy friend who is talking about uh, someone that they dated two years ago and clearly they're still quite mm. obsessed with them or bringing them up all the time, uh, how should I maybe hint to them that they may need to see someone like you? Do they need to see someone like you? Yeah, well, I think it's just kind of, you know, mirroring to them. Yeah, like that sounds really painful. Like do you, do you want to move on, you know, because you're kind of stuck in this relationship pain, you know, and, and, until, and once you're stuck there, you can't move on. So I think, you know, and it's different for everyone because I think, any breakup is a grieving process and I think grief takes time for all of us to move through, whether that be the death of a loved one or a breakup and a breakup can be like a death. And I think it's healthy and normal to feel anger, to feel rage, to feel panic, to feel, feel fear, to feel all those things, you know, but I think it's, you know, if they're staying stuck, if they're kind of, yeah, obsessively talking about the same things, if they're stuck in sort of anger and blame, you know, and not able to kind of be vulnerable, then that might be a sign that, yeah, maybe they need to talk to someone to kind of process that those more tricky emotions. Can someone who's been a love love addicted to someone uh, stay friends with them? Well, I don't think so because normally it ends pretty. You know, it's fireworks that normally ends pretty pretty explosively. When it does, yeah, it rarely ends well because you've got to remember as well. Like normally, who the love addict is dating probably is is more what we call um, the love avoidant. So love avoidance is, is the other side of the love addict and they, they do a dance together. So typically love avoidance are drawn to uh, love addicts and vice versa. So they've got, they're normally, you know, addicted to the avoidant and the more they display this sort of clingy, needy behaviour, the avoidant kind of retreats and retreats and retreats. So normally they don't want a friendship, they don't want to talk to them, they've just kind of really blocked them and they're not feeling anything. So it's tricky. Yeah. It's not kind of like a healthy breakup where, yeah, let's process it. Let's talk about it. Let's stay friends. Let's try to be civil. Yeah. Because the love avoidant has got their own sort of myriad of childhood issues. Um, and the love avoidants normally have other ones with the other addictions. They're the alcoholics, they're the coke addicts, they're the sex addicts. So they're probably not going to be very available post breakup. So do you have a lot of people crying in your sessions over, over their love addictions or? I always have this yeah. image of people with tissues just bawling their their eyes out in reflection. And does that does that actually happen? And how do you, we, at the end of the day, do. cope with that? It's, it's an occupational hazard when I run out of tissue. <laughs> I've had many a time where I've had to like dig into my handbag and like give some of my my purse pack and everything. But to me, like I doesn't it doesn't distress me. It's not the same as uh, like if someone close to me that I'm emotionally attached to. Like of course I feel empathy 
But I, I sort of, I also believe that no change can happen unless we're in touch, you know, with the emotions behind it. So it's healthy. Like, I think it's really healthy. I think it's, I'd much rather someone sitting there crying than sitting there getting angry and telling me their, their plot of revenge or how to get back with them or how to get even because I think they're not really in touch with the feelings. I think someone that's actually being vulnerable, there's, there's growth in that. So people actually talk about revenge. Oh, totally. Whoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, I'm totally. waving this, aren't I? Homicidal rage and suicidal depression. You kind of see people swing through all kinds of things. Like they're, they're hurting. Mm. Yeah. Do you encourage uh, some form of physical outlet as well? Like, I don't know, boxing or running or something to get to get mm. some of that out? I think things that ground people are good. Um, you know, the whole concept of mindfulness and, and grounding. Grounding is a great anxiety and depression kind of reduction technique. So things like, um, you know, old school therapies to say, yeah, go punch a pillow if you're angry. But what we found is that actually what happens when the pillow is not there, you're punching a wall, you're punching someone else. It tends to just make you more angry and, you know, stressed. Not that, you know, a cardio exercise isn't good, but I think particularly for mental health, things that ground your mindfulness or things like yoga, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, walks being in nature, those kind of things are good. And but I, I, I mean, I think yoga is amazing. Yeah, amazing for eating disorders, amazing for addictions, amazing for most things because it's really about acceptance and being in the moment and, and learning to kind of let go, which is, is, is what a lot of this is about, is learning to let go and, and find kind of calm within yourself. So what are your top tips for addressing love addiction? If you could share with our listeners like a little list. Yeah, I think to kind of, you know, expect, I think a lot of people come in with the expectation that therapy is going to make them better and, you know, and fix things. And I think it's just going to make you feel, so expect post-therapy feelings, expect a lot of stuff is going to come up for you, you know, expect almost sometimes you might leave a session feeling worse than when you came in, feeling like you've really been knocked around. So I think that, you know, you have to kind of prepare yourself for that, that it's not a Band-Aid. It's really kind of almost digging it at the wound at times. So, yeah, I think to be patient with the process, um, yeah, to ex- expect post-therapy feelings, yeah, and to, um, yeah, to be, to be ready to be ready to change as well. Like you've got to think, what is this costing me and am I actually ready for this? Yeah, even if the process of it, you know, changes hard, yeah, to expect it, it is a, it is a bit of a painful process. Yeah, and to and to read, I think, um, you know, Pia Melody is is amazing. Anything by Pia Melody, so she's actually got a book, Facing Love Addiction, that's amazing, and her other book is uh, Facing Codependence. So often when people come into treatment, I'll recommend they kind of read those books alongside kind of seeing me because it kind of educates you. Because love addiction, it's not something you're going to find in the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders. It's not there. It's kind of a, 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 it's a term that Pia Melody actually came up with. Um, so it's not in the on, DSM four. No, oh, no, right. you won't find okay. it there. No, no. So are the other addictions of, um, there though? Yeah, the other ones are. The mm. other ones are. But yeah, that one isn't. So it's kind of this is one that we, you know, uh, we've kind of. It's definitely real. But it's not one you're going to find in any sort of mental disorder book. So um, Pia Melody is, is is amazing, and anything by her, I think, is really good to read and, and get your hands on anything she's written, any of her clips. She's great. So she coined the term love addiction. 
She did. She did. So she um she ran the Meadows Clinic um and yeah, kind of came up with this thing that, you know, originally she treated chemical addictions and then sort of came up with the idea that under all these addictions like codependency and then from codependency, love addiction is kind of an extreme form of codependency. So, um, and I first sort of stumbled across her when I worked for South Pacific Private Hospital in Sydney and they're the one, they kind of bought out her program. So they're one of the, probably the only places that treats love addiction um, in Australia really. Yeah. It's great when as a, as a, as a uh, practitioner there's a good book or two you could refer people to. I, I love being able mm. to say to someone, go and read this book on this topic. Mm. It's mm. it's great. And, so. it sh- and it shows, I guess, it shows you how motivated people are mm. because how many of those people actually go away, get one, order the book or buy the book, step to actually pick the book up and read it. Yeah, not many. Yeah, do, do most of the people that. that you treat for love addiction go away and, and read the books though? I think you can tell who who are the committed ones versus mm. who are not by just suggesting that and whether they actually take you up or not or, mm. or not. And the ones that do, they go, "Oh my god, Jeff, this is amazing! This this book, this really spoke to me." And you know, and that can be really rich for our for our work. So yeah, I would definitely say yeah, like yeah, her books are amazing. Any other top tips for our listeners on how to treat love addiction before I get to the getting to know you questions? <laughs> I was hoping we wouldn't have time to get to those ones. <laughs> <laughs> We've got um, time. Yeah, I think to just, to just yeah, to kind of, you know, yeah, to really validate yourself, to know that it is real, you know, because I think we often give ourselves a hard time, you know, to re- recognize that this is more than just a breakup. It's a lot more than just a breakup. This is born out of trauma and childhood trauma, and that's why it's feeling that bit tougher than just a breakup. So not to be tough on yourself and to actually realize that you're dealing with childhood abandonment plus kind of an adult breakup so that it is one of the really more difficult things to shift and and treat. So kind of almost validating yourself for why you feel like this and why you can't get over it and not you know, giving yourself to a harder time that without treatment, this is something that is pretty hard to just deal with on your own. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point because how many times do people say, oh, you know, she broke up with him and she still can't get over it. She should just get over it. You see that, you hear that all the time and it obviously is not, it's not so easy because it could be a love addiction. So um, Mm. yeah, I'm glad we've had this conversation. I am too. And hopefully that was was useful to people. I will share this widely. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. That's what we like. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you. Uh, yeah. You mentioned obviously some books about, you know, written by Pia Melody. Are there any mm. other favorite books that you have that you can share with us that may not relate necessarily to what you do, but otherwise? Oh, see, I'm. A, this is the problem. You know, I'm the biggest. It's like you know, the, the house cleaner that has a messy house. I love fiction. Yeah, I, I read the therapy books because because I have to to keep myself educated and everything. But fiction is kind of my my escape. So I'm a massive um mass, massive fiction reader. Uh, gosh, um, I think I read recently that I loved. Uh, I don't know if you read Boy Follows Universe. Oh, I that loved that. Up. That was my favorite book of oh. last year. Me yeah, too, and yeah. I don't know whether it's because at the time I was sitting in a beautiful resort in Thailand <laughs> without my children with my amazing partner, and that's why I love the book. But I think, no, I just love that book. <laughs> just a I great book. It, I, it's an amazing book. So I think that's probably was my favourite one of last year, and I can't wait till um, his next one comes out. But 
I love that book. And to me, that has, I mean, talk about addiction, mm. talk about dysfunction, like everything we're kind of talking about. I mean, I love books, uh, yeah, with really rich characters and storylines and, you know, dysfunctional families and, and, and all those things because there's so much beauty in that book. And I think the story of the, of the brothers, I think being a mum and having two boys and the beautiful relationship they had, that really spoke mm. to me. So, yeah, I'd say of recent of, of books, that would have to be one of my favourites of, of recent times that I've read. Yeah, that was my favourite book of 2019. I remember reading it mm. on the plane from Sydney to Dubai and mm. I couldn't put it down because I was enjoying it so much. And when I finished the book, I actually missed the characters because they're such oh, rich oh. characters. Even the, even the nasty ones were quite, um, you know, yeah, you, you're quite amicable in a way. Yeah, he, exactly. And I remember I was at the bookshop and, you know, I was like, oh, I want to take one away and the woman's bookshop was going a bit heavy and I'm like, give it to me because I, I love heavy books. I love sort of rich kind of heavy, yeah, material. Yep. So, yeah, I loved it. And uh, which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Uh, it might sound really sappy, but I would I would almost say like my kids in a way. Yeah, which kind of sound like I always say that to people that, and people are just like, what do you mean your kids? But really I think that, you know, they kind of, um, they keep me grounded. I think they force me to kind of, in the work I do, every day I'm like gosh I have to be a good parent I don't want to mess them up you know I think they keep mm. me grounded they make me have to be a good role model they're kind of what inspire me um I was sort of I was still studying when I had my young when I had my eldest because I was quite young when I had him and it was kind of a little bit lost kind of had this vague idea of what I wanted to do but it was when he was three months old that I actually went and did my master's in counseling and psychotherapy so he's kind of grown up along me building this career um so yeah I would say I don't know if I didn't have him yeah if I'd necessarily be um as successful as I am so I think I owe a lot to him what are your children's names so my eldest is Toby he's 10 um and my youngest boy is Bailey he's seven Toby and Bailey yes you should dedicate this episode to Toby (laughs) and Bailey just over here in 10 minutes I'm yelling at them for something (laughs) they've done or leaving their shoes somewhere or making (laughs) them And what uh, what songs and music make you happy, Jessica? Um, oh gosh, I've got such a varied playlist, and any one of your friends would would any one of my friends would say I tend to monopolise the music. Um, if people over at my house, but um, uh, I love. I mean, I love all '80s music. Is just yeah, my happy place. Yeah, bit of like flash dance, that kind of stuff. I love <laughs> oh, it. I yeah. love all my all, all the daggy '80s stuff. But you know, I'm really um at the moment um. Listening, I, I kind of go through phases of music. I get really into an album or into kind of a genre. I'm really loving Coldplay again at the moment, which I haven't listened to for years. So, have they got new music yeah. out? No, I've gone back to I think when I listened to it at the moment, Rush of Blood to the Head, which I came out gosh 15 years ago or something. So, yeah, mine's kind of varied. I go through, I go through sort of, yeah, I mean, yeah, love all genres, but I think probably happy music would probably be, yeah, anything from the 80s. I agree. It's my favourite genre yeah, too. Yeah, I love it. Love it. You can't go wrong with the 80s. And you put it on, it just changes the, the vibe of the room. Everyone perks up. It's yeah. kind of everyone's kind of guilty secret, I feel like. Guilty pleasure. <laughs> what was in the water in the 80s, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and what's your dream uh, collaboration? Oh, gosh. So would this be like what people that I would want to work with? Yeah. Yeah. They could be anyone. Uh, oh, anyone. Well, gosh, you probably – you. I don't know. Would you, I kind of wonder sometimes how it would be to kind of have a, have a good comedian in the room to kind of make light of it, but there's sometimes you need that. 
I've always sort of had this thing of, you know, because I was in a room with kind of, I don't know, the characters from Seinfeld, how that yeah. would be. Because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I feel like my life is a bit like a, a sitcom or, you know, or if it was kind of, if I could work with Fraser, how that would be, how that would go. So I sort of feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit of comedy, maybe a combination, a bit of Seinfeld and, and Fraser in the room would, would, yeah, probably make some good entertainment. Yeah, but, Seinfeld um, was yeah. one of my 90s addictions, that's for sure. Oh, Speaking of addictions. It. Love it because you've got to have a sense of humour. And, you know, I think that's the thing with therapy as well. It's not always bleak. Like we have a lot of laughs too at times. Like we laugh, we joke, you know, you have to kind of have some lightness and some optimism, yeah, to kind of keep going. It can't just, you can't just be saturated in, in negativity all the time. So I think it's really important to bring a bit of laughter. Yeah. So, and I think that was the amazing thing about, about Seinfeld, isn't it? It's kind of the show about nothing and, you know, it's that sort of a little bit of dark comedy, but kind of having a laugh even when it is kind of a little bit bleak and dark. Yeah, I mean, George Costanza, one of my favourite people. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That, that, that and ER got me through the 90s at mid school. Oh, ER. Gosh, yes, love ER as well. Yes. Yeah, you're bringing back memories now. <laughs> I'm going to get you back on the show uh, and we will talk about shopping addiction because I'm very interested in talking to you about that and I think a lot of our listeners would be interested too. And, of course, the one that I see lots uh, is eating disorder and eating mm, addiction. Mm. So I'm going to ask you back, but thank you for, for talking to me I'd today, Jessica. To. It's an absolute pleasure. Anytime I look forward, thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with the lovely Jessica ryan Zeman. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them, especially those love addicts out there. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash, Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people I can interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.